there's so much here that is relevant to people's lives today and you know it might be troubling and it might be upsetting and it might be really illuminating but i think it's important these stories resonate and people have no idea that they are participating in this process My name is Daniel Justice. I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and a professor of critical indigenous studies and English at the University of British Columbia on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Hunkamenium-speaking Musqueam people. Hi, I'm Jeannie O'Brien. I am a citizen of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation, and I teach in the history department at the University of Minnesota, where I'm also affiliated with American Indian Studies, American Studies, Anthropology, and Heritage Studies in Public history, and we are located in the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. So Jeannie, our book is out. I know, it's so exciting, Daniel. I, I was so excited to get back from a trip and rip open a package, and there was my first copy of Allotment Stories, and it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. I, uh, I, I'm glad we have the opportunity to have this conversation, because we actually haven't chatted since the book came out. I know, this is perfect. So what, what are your first thoughts when you have your book in, in your hand? I have to say my first thought is your brilliance in giving great direction to the art department for this <laughs> <laughs> You had so many good ideas. I mean, like sometimes I have a really strong idea about what I want on the cover and other times I haven't. And this one I just didn't know. And you had great ideas and we had great direction and, and work with the designer. Oh, the designer was so great. Yeah, I was really pleased. One of the things I really was taken by was I'm I'm kind of a fussy font person. You know, typefaces, I have very particular ideas. Garamon. <laughs> oh, Jeannie. Jeannie, take, take the knife from my heart. <laughs> <laughs> the subtitle is in a slightly different font, and I wasn't too sure about it. And turns out that font actually dates to the allotment period. Uh-huh. So the designer really put some careful thought into all of those aspects. And it, you know, so it's very thematically appropriate. So after that, I was like, oh, I love that font. <laughs> yes, I remember that conversation. We were like, we're not too sure about this shade of red and then the font. And then all of that just just showed us how, how absolutely thoughtful the designer was. And we were excited all over yeah. again. And, you know, all the contributors have been really happy with it. And when you actually see the book itself as a material object, it's just so, so striking. I'm really proud of it. It's beautiful. I think as an object of beauty, it's really striking. And then, you know, you start opening it up and you're like, oh my gosh, people did such good work. I've, I've been kind of carrying it around and just kind of flipping through it and rereading chapters. It's such a delight. Yeah. I mean, I just have to say what an amazing experience it was to work with you on this book. I just treasured every bit of it. We should, maybe we should talk a little bit about the origin story of this book. Absolutely. Yeah, I have to say, it, it, you know, working with you has been a high point of my career, I must say. Um, I don't Likewise. know that I've laughed so much <laughs> in editorial work as you and I did. And not laughing at anybody, but just like the experience <laughs> has, been, has been joyful. So yeah, so for folks who don't know, Jeannie and I have known each other for a very long time, and the book actually had its origins at a conference, the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association conference, when it was held at UBC. That's where the book started. Yeah, I remember getting to the opening reception for 
this great big wonderful fantastic conference that we all just love we haven't been able to do for a couple of years because of the pandemic and uh, of course there you were one of the people who helped put this big monster together and we were just socializing we just started we just you know the usual thing you do what are you working on what are you working on and we came upon the fact that we were working on our various personal family allotment stories. And we just started gabbing away about how excited we were about our own projects and how different they were from each other. Yeah, that was what really struck me. So I was talking about how allotment, it sent my family away from what's now Oklahoma. And how, to my mind, allotment was at least as hurtful to the Cherokee Nation as the Trail of Tears was. Uh, but you had a very different kind of uh, allotment story. Yeah. So the, the White Earth Ojibwe Nation is invented by colonialism, right? <laughs> in a very different way than the Cherokee Nation exists in the settler-colonial relationship. And so Ojibwe folks were, in my particular reservation, from disparate bands settled on a particular place that had no prior concrete, tangible existence. So it was established by treaty in 1867, and the idea was to make all Ojibwe people from Minnesota in the area go to White Earth and be, be planted there. And so my family was assigned to that reservation, but never lived there until allotment came along. They had this you know, classic Ojibwe story in Minnesota where they were just mobile all over northern Minnesota in various places that were of significance to them. And so it was allotment that actually drew them to White Earth. And then, of course, they were very quickly dispossessed, and there was a diaspora of sorts that happened after that. But it created a connection to this place that became really concrete that hadn't been concrete prior to allotment. So we just got thinking about how different those stories were and wondering, huh, well, these, there must be really, really various stories about allotment, a period that I think as an historian is just really under, I don't know if it's under-researched, but there's not enough out there in scholarship about the experience. So that got us brainstorming. And then like thinking, okay, so we know there would be different experiences in what's you know called the US, certainly different experiences in Canada where I live and teach. And then like worldwide, there would certainly be diverse experiences. How have indigenous peoples grappled with this idea of privatization? And the idea just snowballed from there. Like this sounds like a project. Is this a book? This, this has got to be a book. <laughs> I think we decided on the spot over a glass of wine, we should do this. This should be a project. We were both kind of a little bit fit, had, having just finished something and just embarking on new things. And it was like just exactly the right moment to say, yeah, let's do this. Yeah. And then I think, did we talk to Jason at the conference? I think we did. <laughs> <laughs> we have a project to pitch for you. Both of us, of course, had worked with Jason before and published monographs with the press. It seemed to me, it seemed to both of us, I think, like a perfect fit for this kind of volume. And I have to say, you know, I've, I've done edited collections before and I'm really proud of, of those works, but this one just came together. And, you know, it certainly there's a lot of work with it, but I think the enthusiasm that people had, so we, we got our call for papers. I think it was it was a... Like, call for proposals first, right? Yes. I think, you know, there's so, so many different ways of putting together edited volumes. And same here. I've been involved with some really wonderful edited volumes that I'm very proud of and really love. And have been, you know, fortunate to work closely with so many wonderful colleagues. 
But for this one, we really talked about it. There's a number of ways to approach this. You can say, oh, let's get together a list of people who are working on these topics and see these are the topics that I'd like to see covered. Or in this case, these are the places that I would, you know, would like to see us for us to see a chapter in the book. And in, instead, we, you know, we did that a little bit, but we decided let's open this. Let's see who's out there. Let's just let's draft a call for proposals and send it out into the world and see what it brings back. And, you know, using social media, using whatever networks we had. And that was really fascinating, I thought. Didn't you? It was so good. Uh, we had so many voices of people that we just wouldn't have known. And I think one thing I'm really proud about is there. there's a lot of community voices here. There are a lot of, you know, untenured faculty in here. There are, you know, people who aren't in the academy who are doing work out in the world. So it's such a really rich, there are creative writers in here. I think it just worked out so beautifully. And it became something I didn't envision at the time and is so much better than I had imagined it would have been. Absolutely. It reflects, I think, in so many ways, what many of us have been grappling with for the last several years about how do you think about global indigenous studies? You know, first of all, it's global. And, you know, it centers community and indigenous voices and perspectives and experiences. But it's also really, really interdisciplinary that, you know, I'm teaching a grad seminar right now. And well, we started with your book, of course. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's a, supposed to be a straight up history class, although it's cross-listed in American Indian studies. But there's only two books that are actually written by people who are trained in history. All the rest are from <laughs> science, you name it. So that's kind of how we work. And this book does reflect that, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's also multi-genre, and I think that was also really important to us, that it, it's not just about scholarship, it's about its family stories, like our respective contributions. We've got poems, we've got histories, we've got very reflective pieces that really don't fit a genre, that kind of bleed across creative nonfiction um, and memoir and scholarship. So I think that too was important, that if we're, if we're thinking about Indigenous responses to privatization, Let's get a diversity of approaches and not just a diversity of voices. And, you know, we were, I think, very fortunate to get one of our first proposals was from Leanne Simpson. And this, she gave us two pieces that are in this book and, and they're brief, but they're so moving and really focus all the issues so well. So we start off with her after our introduction. And then the very next piece is, I didn't know Sarah Dilly, but oh my goodness, she's an artist who you knew. And her chapter on California and her family and embracing art and poetry. And in that piece itself, it's multi-genre and it's just so captivating for me. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of, it's an ideal way to start and introduce readers to the various threads that they're going to encounter as they go. Um, yes. So I, I think the placement of that piece is also really important. There are connecting threads that go through the entire collection. And then we have pieces on Mexico, on Palestine, on Sampiland, many, many different places. Although, of course, as we say in our introduction, and probably because of who we are and we started this project and we, we uh, shepherded it, it's, you know, it's got a heavy U.S.-Canada focus, but it does reach out. I think we think of it as kind of, I've, you know, certainly not the last word on something, but an opening up, hopefully, of a conversation that will continue. Absolutely. And I've, I've kind of 
we haven't talked about this. I vaguely thought, what would volume two look like? <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> Only because there are so many other voices, right? And I think that that has been, for me, the biggest struggle with this. Like, we had tried to get a, a contribution from Australia. We tried to get one from Brazil. Uh, we identified the need to have one from um, Friedman perspectives in what's uh, currently called Oklahoma. And so I think there are so many other voices we would love to have as part of this conversation. But of course, you know, a single volume can't encompass all of that. So I think I would love to see one that kind of takes up other spheres and spaces and, you know, other genres and forms. But I, I'm really happy with what we have. I am too. Now, you know, in addition to the, the, the things that didn't come through that we were hoping for, and we tried hard, we tried hard, but we also wanted to make sure this was done, you know, that we were not, as can happen with edited volumes, waiting and waiting and waiting. So the lag time between, you know, we're organizing this book and it coming out is, is too long. So we finally had a moment where we said, okay, we've got what we've got. There's more stories to be told, but other people can do that, or maybe we'll do our volume too. For me, one of the things that, that I would like to have seen represented that didn't end up there is there are stories out there of indigenous people who chose privatization as a way to try to defend their homelands. And we have a little bit of that in Willie Bauer's piece, but I would like to have seen a more kind of tribally focused chapter on that. So if we do do volume two, I want to see that for one thing. And I think another area we had hoped to get a contribution on was other than human peoples specifically kind of looking at you know animal and plant people in relation to privatization you know so they're so often seen as just resources but how how have indigenous peoples or other than human relatives been either you know in collaboration or conflict around these ideas of of uh, privatization and that that was kind of a hard conceptual chapter to find folks with but i i think that would have been something i would have liked to have seen too and, you know, with, with your work and the work of Leanne Simpson and other folks, Shiri Pasternak, who is also in the volume, relationality has become so central to what we're thinking about right now. Yeah. Uh, would have been a great way to actually center that idea. So maybe we should start a list of things for volume two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to throw that out here, but I, I was like, yeah, I, I can see this. I, I can hear Jason going like, what? <laughs> or maybe What? I, I don't know about the tone on that. It just depends on. <laughs> but so we've been talking about all the things we wish had been in there. But I've got to say, the things that are there, I I am so delighted with. I I think we have such a good collection. And you know, and we were talking about the timing thing. We had to get something out because people also have, especially for the the untenured academics here who are going up for tenure, we want to make sure they have a publication. So that helps. Absolutely, we wanted to make sure that we had representation of people in very different kinds of locations and. We both agree that it's an obligation if you're going to do that to make sure that you get things out in good good time. Um, I had the story that I, I think I told you about my, my first chapter. I, I think I told you this, that you know I gave as a conference paper a long, long time ago. And they, oh, we're going to do an edited volume. It took 10 years to come out. <laughs> <laughs> so it came out, I think, after I got tenure. So it didn't count. <laughs> yeah. And you know I, that, that felt like something at the time. So I'm always really... Cognizant, cognizant of that. So yeah. any of you folks who are out there early career, if we do volume two, we're committed to getting things out quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also just, I think the energy of having um, emergent scholars who are you know asking very different kinds of questions. And you know, we have a few pieces in here that are like that, that are transformative in the field. 
I'm really excited that those works are here and are part of this conversation, but are also in the world. The discussion is is better as a result. Absolutely. And, you know, for, for folks who are listening to this who don't have the book, one thing that I'm also really proud of is we have a glossary. Um, yes. A glossary of terms. So it actually can help people navigate some of the specialist legal terms, some of the political concepts that just might not be evident. And the glossary is kind of collectively authored by our contributors and us. And we had the the assistance of a colleague of mine here at UBC, who is in the Peter Allard School of Law. Uh, his name is Douglas Harris. And uh, he was kind enough to give that a review and had some really helpful lawyerly advice. So we were able to incorporate that into the glossary. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's really critical because, of course, these processes operate at all kinds of levels, but certainly at the legal and political level. And precision with that sort of thing is really important. I think it was one of our external reviewers who suggested the glossary, wasn't it? I think you're right. Yeah. When when the suggestion came to us, it was like, yeah. Well, yeah. That's like, <laughs> of course, that's a really good idea. I mean, especially when you're when you're putting together stories from so many different, actually, times and places. Yeah. That you're like, what is that again? So your our readers can very easily access that. And, you know, certainly there are some concepts that cross many chapters, but some of them are unique to particular chapters. Yeah. Yeah. So like particular kind of land tenure uh, conversations in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, and kind of Maori experience with privatization in a, in a very particular way. The article itself does a good job of talking about that, but it's also helpful to have the glossary just break that down. I can remember too, just in terms of the sheer joy of doing this book, we've both done several books at this point, and authors out there will will recognize this. At a certain point, when you get to the point of doing the copy edits, like, oh, all this stuff to run down, and we're in a time crunch, and then you're doing the page proofs, and it's like, oh, I am so tired of this. <laughs> yeah, I remember you and I having this conversation. At the, we both we were we shared. I, one, that's one of the things I think we did really well was share the workload, but yeah. we both did the page proofs because we wanted to make sure. And I remember having the conversation that I love this book. Yeah. And <laughs> that familiar sensation of fatigue was not there with this book. Yeah. Well, and I think part of that also was because we had delightful contributors um, yes. who, even if they had stuff going on, they were attentive. We didn't get ghosted by anybody, which was nice, no. right? <laughs> right. Well, I think we wrote some pretty stern email messages to our authors. We did, time. but they they came through <laughs> too, right? Um, true. They absolutely came through. You know, people were really responsive to queries. Like it was, it was, it was good. I have to say, you know, for a a book that deals with such traumatic issues, it was it was a little weird to enjoy the development of it so much. But I think part of it was also I felt like it it was a book, and I still very much feel that way that it's a book that matters. Yes, and that it is for sure a book that takes up all kinds of trauma. But I think every single chapter looks to or touches on or reverberates with the ideas around resurgence that are so important to Indigenous peoples everywhere. Always and everywhere, but certainly is foregrounded right now in really profound ways. We were looking at these chapters piecemeal all the time and then deciding on how to organize them and all those kinds of things. So I guess once we got to the page proofs, that was the first time we really sat down and carefully read it all the way through in its final form. So maybe that's part of it too. And, and it hung together for us. 
yeah and and the organization like that was actually your your brainstorming was how to, how to organize it um but it, it took us a little while to get there yeah well and i think you know we talked a lot about how to organize it we didn't want to you know do some boring historical thing where you just do some kind of chronological thing or do something that was about regions or parts of the world or certainly not you know nation states and so figuring out well, so what are the themes here how can we break it down into chunks that kind of hang together was was quite a process i think you said i don't know what to do about this i said I'll do it. <laughs> and then you then you had it there i was like oh thank god Janie, because i was not gonna get there <laughs> that actually i think that it speaks to how we worked together i mean one of the things that can be really complicated if you're co anything with somebody is how do you balance the work such that whoever is involved feels like they're participating in something collectively as opposed to maybe carrying the burden too much or where are they? And I think, I mean, that just, we just, I think planned that out really well. And while you're just such a delight to work with, I mean, we, as you said, we laughed a lot. We had fun you know, thank goodness for zoom. We did most of this over zoom and that was just really great. It was. And, you know, it also felt like we were being held up by the project in some ways, because if things were really intense for me, you actually, they weren't quite as intense for you. It was almost like, it was almost like the cosmos knew that, you know, right. <laughs> you know, and when things were really busy for you, I had some, some time I could just kind of attend to it. So we were able to each kind of hold the other up. Yeah. And kind of take on stuff. So it felt very collaborative at every level. And it's hard sometimes to, to feel like you're on the same page all the time with everything that's going on. But I, I always felt really like we saw each other in the process and that made a difference. Yeah. I mean, like, going back to the story of the cover, which I had no ideas for at all. And you were full of ideas and I couldn't figure out how to get the Pinterest page. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. But I think on that point too, and it goes back to you know some of the things we've talked about is I had ideas. This is better than any of those ideas I had. At the end of the day, right? You, you have all these ideas, you give it over to the designer and hope. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So you want to talk about your chapter a little bit? Should we talk about each other's chapters? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. My chapter was kind of a weird one um, because I've, I've, and I've, I've been wanting to write this story for a while. So I'm a Cherokee Nation citizen through my dad and we've got deep, deep roots in the nation. Um, but through my mom's family, I'm a descendant of white people who tried to get Chickasaw land during uh, the allotment period. And I wanted to write that story and kind of put them parallel with one another. So my dad wasn't raised in Oklahoma. He was raised in Colorado. And so my grandmother was the last member of our family to be born in the reservation boundaries. He grew up estranged from his mother's family because she died when he was 14. So he, you know, he's a phenotypically native person who was raised not really knowing much about that. And so he had the kinship, but not the stories. Whereas my mom's dad had this entirely imagined story of native heritage he took up beading and so he had the stories but no kinship and so that that parallel was something i wanted to kind of look at and also i was writing it around the time when there was a you know renewed pushback from cherokee citizens on um elizabeth warren's claims to cherokee heritage and and i've always well, I haven't always, but but for a long time, I've been thinking that so many of these family stories of kind of vague Cherokee heritage or vague Native heritage really do come from the time of allotment. 
falsified stories were rampant, but then they became kind of embedded in families' cultural lineages. Um, and so a lot of people who have no Native heritage sincerely believe they do because it was constructed in order to get hold of Native land. So my essay is really kind of tracking that through and looking at the ways that these constructed stories displace and sometimes overlay genuine kinship for, for other people and what the consequences are for our nations for that. And also how it's different for different communities and, you know, how communities like freedmen are displaced um, in a lot of those stories as well. And so trying to weave those threads together was the purpose of my essay. And I, I'm pretty pleased with it. I'm, I'm curious to see how people are going to respond because, you know, anytime you take up people's stories that aren't supported by any evidence, um, there can be some, some painful pushback, but uh, we have to talk about it. Well, I mean, and I think that's one of the things that's so important about this find. So you have this really important family story, and it's it's fraught with all kinds of things. But it also just kind of helps illuminate the complexity of the whole process of land privatization, that it is experienced at the familial, at the familial and the individual level, as well as at the tribal and national level. And it, it brings outsiders in. By definition, that's what it's trying to do. That brings its complexities with it as well. So I think your story shows that. And, and as you say, the tie to claimants such as Elizabeth Warren, it gives a kind of insight into at least one way that those kinds of stories can percolate up and take hold. And how people, I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren really believed that story for the longest time, right? And probably somehow still does a little bit somehow. <laughs> well, I, I actually think she probably does. I mean, she was called to account by a group of Cherokee citizens. I was part of that initiative and has never acknowledged that the story is false. She's apologized for the DNA stuff, but she's never she's never actually acknowledged that there is no evidence to support that story. So uh, yeah, I think she I think she does believe it, and I think that's also the point with all, all these allotment stories is that there are there are consequences that aren't just about the immediate moment, but there are consequences that communities and families are still dealing with, and they're wide reaching and they're wide ranging, and I you know that's yours that's your chapter too, right? Yeah. Yes, where, you know, you end up in diaspora because of the process. My family ends up going to the reservation as a result. And one of the reasons I was able to, well, one of the, one of the reasons I wrote my chapter the way that I did is, well, my mother grew up on the reservation at White Earth and only went away to go to college and then ended up getting married and settling away. My grandmother kept her place on the reservation until she passed in the 80s and her husband passed a couple decades before that. And at that point, she moved in with us down in southern Minnesota when I was about seven years old and lived with us. I grew up with my grandma in my house. At the same time, she kept her house on the reservation and would go back in the summers with one of us helping her out because she had some issues and mobility and so forth. But when she was with us, and she was so funny and delightful and just a bad girl in all the best ways. <laughs> <laughs> take my purse, go across the street and get some fudge. <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, but she, one of the ways she passed her time, she had mobility issues. So she was lots of times just sitting in the living room and she was reading and reading and then scribbling away. It wasn't until much later I realized what she was scribbling about was her memories of growing up on the reservation and family stories and all of these, these things that were just, you know, sometimes just lists of names other times, kind of extensive memories of her dad and her brother going to work and 
lumber industry, which lots of Native folks did. His, her dad was non-Native, but her, of course, her brother. Uh, so all these stories that came together, and I'd always wanted to do something with them. And at that point, I think I'd gotten to the point where I had transcribed all of them. There's like eight or 10 little notebooks, and it's maybe 200 pages. So I was able to use her writings. It complemented with other kinds of work, you know, historical, archival things, and secondary literature to talk about the experience of her family coming to the reservation, which they did for allotments, and how they were always leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back until finally they lost all the, well, not finally, they lost all their land really quickly, <laughs> like most people, but stayed and moved to this, you know, the, the metropolis of Minoma, Minnesota, which has always been, I think, 1,200 people and still is. So that was the big urban center on the res, and that's, that was her beloved Minoma, where we always used to go and visit her. Uh, so I, I was able to tell, you know, what's what does this look like? And one of the things that happens in in my family is her her siblings, all of them, well, many of her siblings, this isn't a reservation story, died in infancy or very young. But those who live to adulthood, they're part of the, you know, building the urban Indian community of Minneapolis upon being dispossessed and becoming adults. And then finally her parents made the move. So at the end... She was the last one left on the reservation until she passed. So I was able to tell the story. And then she had a lot of colorful characters in the family, which it was fun to be able to write about. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's going to be something for readers is just to kind of to really get a sense of there's a lot of joy in these stories and a lot of there's a lot of pain about the loss. But, but you really get a sense of, of the human beings who are grappling with the consequences of these things and sometimes who are thriving for a while but who also are are seeing things kind of on the horizon the the constancy of the assault on indigenous lands and and how folks are trying to navigate that by whatever means necessary but the family stories i think are often the ones that really click for me is just because you actually get a sense of the human beings there yeah i absolutely love that part of the volume and that that goes across so many of the different selections. It's one of the things I reflected on when I was writing is, you know, by everything I can figure out about that time in my grandma's life, they were just dirt poor. Once they lost their land, they didn't own anything. They rented, they moved around. My great-grandfather did all kinds of different things to just to put food on the table, I guess. And yet the overwhelming sense in her writings is joy, like you just said. She, or at least her memory of those times was one of just delight and, you know, wonder, which is just so very interesting. And, and also, I mean, interesting from the perspective of that, you know, mostly she was reflecting not on her life as a mother, but really looking back at those early times on the res, which is something that's fascinating. And I wish I would have asked her about when she was still alive. Yeah, that, you know, I, I lost my mom in November and that's, that's a, you know, those are the questions, like, right? You don't necessarily know which questions you needed to ask until you can't ask them anymore. Exactly. And I think a lot of our contributors actually reach to that, right? Like they're, they're doing the family work and they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I had known some of this. And then you, you really start to think, well, the reason we don't know some of this is also one of those consequences of allotment and privatization, right? Yep. Like there are so many things I I love about the collection, but you know we talked a little bit about it before. But I think that global reach is really mm -hmm. exciting. 
um, and and went in directions I didn't expect. Right? We have we have two Sami uh, contributions, not just one. You know, oftentimes you have you get you get just one. Um, uh -huh. So we have two different perspectives on privatization in Samiland. Um, you, you know, you mentioned um, our contribution that's dealing with um, Palestine. We've got work on Guam, uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, lots in Canada and the U.S., yeah. uh, Hawaii, um, which I don't put in the U.S. Um, yeah, just such a good And Alaska. Range. Oh, and Alaska. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We have one that's Hawaii and Alaska and one that's just Alaska. That's true. And Mexico. Um, yeah. Palestine. And, and I think for folks to see that these are global struggles. And in a lot of ways, the General Allotment Act of the U.S. sets a template. I mean, I think, too, one of the things, I, I think it probably overdetermines how folks in global indigenous studies think about dispossession of this sort. Because it was a policy that was meant to apply all over what was defined as the U.S. at that time, and it did affect, what, 118 reservations, I think it is. So it was, it's a massive, massive impact and led you know, to massive dispossession. And some of the other processes are not so much part of a holistic policy or policy era, so much as they're piecemeal or they just unfold in different ways. Well, and you know, another thing for us that we had talked about was we also wanted a volume that could be useful in responses to contemporary privatization initiatives. And I think this is a, this volume does that. Like, I think it's cautionary tale um, in some ways. You know, cautionary not just for indigenous communities, but for the privatization advocates to say, hey, you might think you're going to solve the so-called Indian problem, but folks are still around. Folks are still working to get their lands back. Folks are still pushing back. These ill-conceived policies only cause harm, ultimately. I appreciate the fact that the writers all engage that. You know, and of course, it's, it's going to be different for each context, but I think it's also good for our current moment because here in Canada, certainly, we've got a renewed push for privatization and, you know, the exact same rhetoric as in the 19th century. I mean, it's there was never a bad policy that hasn't been, you know, zombified and, you know, unearthed for, you know, to, to wreak havoc on us again. Yeah. I'm thinking about Shuri Pasternak's chapter, why does a hat eat so much land? And then I'm thinking also about Kehalani Kawanui's chapter on Hawaii, where she's looking back to the 19th century and showing here's, the, you know, here is the history of land privatization with the Hawaiian monarchy. And then let's talk about muck Zuckerberg trying to monopolize all of northern Kauai and what that looks like in the context of settler colonialism. So, I mean, so many of these chapters are, are contemporary. Or Ruby Murray's chapter on Osage and the resurgence of bison there. And oh, so many interesting things. Yeah. And then, you know, our afterword is from uh, Stacey Leeds, former Supreme Court. Um, justice on the Cherokee Nation Supreme Court, you know, and a legal scholar who puts it in the context of the McGirt decision and the acknowledgement of reservation boundaries in Northeast Oklahoma. So the, the timeliness, I think, is, is really clear. It's not just a book about people's families. It's not just a book about history. It's a book about now. And it's also a book about the future. One of the things about putting this together, of course, we had the open call for proposals. And then we we looked and, and saw what we had, and then we thought, you know, what else could be here? And maybe we, maybe we called some of our friends. Stacy is that example, of course, because you know her. 
And uh, when this all came together and McGurk had just happened, I think, when we were at that yeah. stage, you said, I think I'm, I think I could, what do you think if I am Stacey? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You know her? <laughs> <laughs> I love her work. She's amazing. And so it's great to have that perspective. And really McGurk is all about this. All of this history precipitates the need for McGirt to get heard and decided. And, and at least for now, this incredible victory for the Cherokee Nation and, well, for the Muscogee Creek initially, but the Five Nations. And now that's getting extended out, right? At least Oneida, I think there's been a case already where they use McGirt. So it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. It's all part of this period. It's not over like anything ever is over. And I think more than most topics, this is one when people read it, they will be like, oh my God, how how have we not been talking more about this? I think privatization has such immediacy for people. You know, and I was I was just thinking about, you know, I own my house on unceded Seychelles territory, right? Yep. Um, and we're woven into these relationships of power and property. You know, and on our title, attached to our title, is a defunct writer that said no one who was not of the Caucasian race could live here. You had a racial covenant in yours. We did. And, and, it, and it travels with the title of the house. So as long as this house gets sold, that is it. And of course, it's, it's no longer valid, but it was in, put in place when my dad was a teenager. That's, you know, there's, a, there's this big mapping prejudice project here at the University of Minnesota that's looking at racial covenants in Minneapolis. And there's now a process where you can get them taken out when you transfer property, or I think just in general, you can get them taken out. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's also, I, I can remember being at a, my husband is from Rhode Island and being at a family reunion out there many years ago. And we were talking to a spouse of a cousin and she's, oh, you're from Minnesota. You're from Minnesota. My family had a cabin up at, and then she named a place on White Earth. And I'm like, oh my God, she has no idea what she's talking about. That's our land, <laughs> you know? Wow. And then like, this story kept unfolding and then it turned out that, oh, and then there had been a store that had gone out of business and we went and bought some of the cabinets and it was my grandfather's little clothing store. So these stories resonate and people have no idea that they are participating in this process that is ongoing. And I hope when they read these, they, they actually think about that. So when they read Keholani's piece, like, and you know, they're planning their trip to Hawaii, maybe this makes them think a little bit about what that means to be part of that tourist economy and what it means to be supporting Zuckerberg's um, assault on Hawaiian sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's so much here that is relevant to people's lives today. And, you know, it might be troubling and it might be upsetting and it might be really illuminating. But I think it's important. Absolutely. And, you know, and here we, we have all these stories of dispossession and in some cases repossession and restoring and all kinds of things. But, you know, you and I, for example, who have been dispossessed and been away, it's still our home. You still feel it in your heart and you still go back and, and connect. I think non-native people think they have a sense of it, but it's different. It's layered in very different kinds of ways. Yeah. And those layers and complexities, I think, really do come through here. Like none of these are simplistic stories at all. They're all very nuanced. You know, there's a lot of ambivalence in a lot of these as well. What is gained under contexts of significant loss? Um, I think Cheryl Lightfoot's piece is, you know, really points to that, you know, a family that's asked to return their allotments to the tribe. 
and how that's actually a really painful thing to consider when it's been held on to so carefully and so tightly and so desperately. Like, do we give this up now? Is this what, what, what happens to it? And also in the chapter just before this, this is so incredible, Nick Estes chapter on his grandfather, he talks about the world of paper fracturing families. And he kind of ends with the Cobell land buyback project without really taking it up. And then Cheryl's chapter very tangibly takes it up as kind of, you know, as you've got a lot of times say like a kitchen table issue. What are we going to do about this program? What are we going to do with the land? And some of those allotments from her family were getting pennies a month. It's not the financial return at all that is at issue here. And it's, I mean, and, and these are people not living there anymore because it's not practical or you know, whatever reasons. So just how deep these, these relationships to the land are, even if you're not right there. Yeah. Well, and even in that, that piece, you know, she said, you know, some families said yes, and some families said no. Yep. And they all had good reasons for their decisions, right? Yeah. So that, that's something I'm very happy about with this volume is just how careful and complicated these pieces are. So you can't just say, you know, it's not a, a story of, you know, easy heroes and easy villains. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are villains, <laughs> no doubt, but even, even some of them are, are quite complicated, right? Yeah, we try to keep the villains mostly in introductory kinds of setups. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And this, the people themselves do that as well. It's more about, well, what do we do about this? Or I think about Joseph Pierce's amazing chapter. Yes. Yeah. Dad being adopted out in his reconnection to Cherokee. It's just a beautiful chapter, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm really excited for people to read this. I'm excited for academics to read it, but I'm really excited for folks in the community to be reading these, too. You know, and we've had some opportunities that I think are coming up where we they're actually going to be talking about these uh, in various community contexts. And, and, you know, people will be sharing their own allotment stories. And I think the benefit of a project like this, one of the benefits is that it helps open up more stories. So we're having more of these conversations openly and actually kind of talking about the differences and the distinctions and the complications. And you have three main chapters from Cherokee Nation writers. And all very different experiences with allotments. And I think that's part of the joy of it, right? Absolutely. I just, I remember my grandmother sitting around and complaining about these people who stole the land. I mean, in our living room, it would, we'd just get on the top of the air and she would name the names. It was <laughs> absolutely awesome. <laughs> and she does a little bit of that in her writing but not compared to how much I heard her talk about it. Some of the textbooks you read about allotment, it's all about 160 acres, goes to the head of the family. It's all about patriarchy. It goes to the men. And that wasn't how it worked at White Earth. Everybody got a slice. Women, girls, men. So I, that just that's always gotten me to think, well, you know what? We really need more detailed stories about how this policy really hit. Because I think none of the... Uh, it, we have some great accounts of the policy as a whole, but there's a lot more nuance we could add, which I think our book does a little bit, and um, I hope there'll be more. I do too, and I'm I'm excited. I'm excited for readers to engage it, and i I hope we I hope we see a lot more allotment stories coming into the world. Whether it's a volume two from us or other people's work, I, I'm glad it's a conversation that's really expanding and developing, and I'm really glad that we're a part of that and that we are joined with this great community of writers and thinkers on that journey. So It's been such a pleasure, Daniel. Absolutely. I'm actually going to miss our, uh, our regular Zoom calls, you know, 
but again, we might we might have another reason to be doing that. <laughs> we were joking around one of the last times we were on Zoom about, well, what's it going to be our next project? Maybe it's volume two, but maybe it's something. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel. Yes, the sequel. Well, it, it has been a real delight. You know, one of the highlights of my career has been working with you on this. So thank you, Jeannie. Likewise, in so many ways. Thank you, Daniel.